I read a paper that was saying that the actual space race is between private actors and developing countries. Hello, space enthusiast. You're now listening to Space Forward Podcast. I'm Hussein Bukhari, your host. With me are Matthias Frenzel and Benjamin Shapiro. In this show, we explore with leading space scientists, experts, and professionals about why and how humanity can achieve a multi-planetary presence within our lifetime. While we are asking the hard questions, we aim to break down complex space ideas into digestible chunks and deconstruct them to first principles. Today, we'll focus on the current status of space governance, space ethics, and trying to find the underlying dynamics and identifying the critical building blocks of a successful 21st century space law canon. Our guest today is the incredibly well-educated, wise, and lovable Timiebi Aganaba Gianti. Timiebi is an assistant professor of space and society in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University in the United States of America. She holds a PhD and LLL from McGill University's Institute of Air and Space Law in Canada, a BL from the Nigerian Law School in Nigeria, and an LLB from University of Leicester, UK. And yeah, she's a fellow alumnus and graduate of the International Space University. And that was just her abbreviated biography. Our conversation here is on the, the topic of uh, space governance, uh, space law. Uh, and you have described yourself as a British-born of Nigerian heritage, Canadian by choice, and now live in U.S., uh, and by the sense of the word, a true citizen of the world. Uh, you're a professor of space and society in the School of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University and alumni from the International Space University. Uh, you've worked at the Nigerian Space Agency, served at the SGAC, Space Generation Advisory Council, supporting the UN program on space application and many, many other advisory boards focusing on space, gender inequality, and holding a total of five degrees uh, and have been a TED speaker. And you're writing a book. What an incredible resume. Uh, what drives you? Uh, you know, why, why are you doing what you're doing? And where, where is all this energy coming from? That's a great question. Um, thank you so much for that kind introduction. And two things drive me. I was a poor, poor student at undergrad. And it's really funny that they say sometimes that your failures are actually the things that set you up because I ended up not doing that well in my undergrad and I just felt like such a failure and I was, I've been making up for it ever since. So I thank God for that failure because it really drove me. And then secondly, I had a two month old son that passed away while I was doing my PhD thesis. And, you know, while I was in hospital with my son, I was writing my thesis and I kept thinking all the problems in the world that I'm thinking about, my son is the one that's going to resolve them. And that pushed me and it got me going. And even though I came out of the hospital with a PhD thesis and without a son, um, his legacy, you know, just, just everything that I do is just remembering my son. 
So failure and loss. Interesting. The things that drive me. That is, that is powerful. That is very, very powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I admire people like yourself and I'm very curious to understand, you know, if you could describe your life in a single sentence, what would it be? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) You don't, you, you don't start off easier. Um, I think it, I feel I basically would call myself an academic entrepreneur. And I got that phrase from Namrata Goswami, who's somebody that I really admire. And I call myself an academic entrepreneur because I didn't realize that academia was so entrepreneurial. There's no one to tell you what to do. You have to wake up each day and decide what you're going to do and how you're going to have an impact in the world. And that's what entrepreneurs do. But it's just that we have a bit of a different audience and we're driven by different things. But essentially, it's waking up each day and saying, I am in control of my destiny. I can decide what I'm going to do today. And how is that going to impact the world? So I would say academic entrepreneur. Wow, that is beautiful. Beautifully put. And, and you know, it kind of raises the question um, and, and we're going to move the discussion towards uh, the, the topic that we're actually here uh, talking about space. Um, when the, the, the question is raised in discussion about why space, um, it doesn't take that long for someone to come up with an analogy, you know, um, to the history of settlement of America. Is there something intrinsic in human nature that drives us to explore? You know, I remember George Mallory put it famously, why did you want to climb Mount Everest when somebody asked him? Um, And he said, because it's there. Um, So I'm curious to understand, you know, is this something more nuanced? Uh, Why? What is your answer to why space? I find this question very, very difficult. And I think it's because I started my space career from a developing country context, which means that we haven't grown up with all these notions of, okay, there's a frontier and okay, we have to colonize and okay, we have to settle. I didn't grow up with that mentality and neither did anyone around me. So, so it's very difficult for me to understand the sense of innate, you know, needing to explore, needing to go out and settle the world. But what does drive me with respect to that is because I know and believe there are people who do feel that way, I kind of have to make sure that I protect everyone else from those innovators. Because I think the thing is, when we think of innovators, we think a lot of us think excitement, but a lot of us think fear because those people, they, they, they don't want to be bound right? The whole point of innovation, the whole point of being an explorer is that you don't know what you're going to find and you just go out and you break things and figure it out. But the rest of us who are not like that are left behind struggling to understand what is it that these people are doing. And I think that's why law is so powerful because it's kind of like, it's the last tool that you have to put some kind of constraint. And I know that scientists and engineers, when they hear a lawyer's coming in the room, they're like, oh my God, that person's going to spoil my project. But it's the only way to safeguard the rest of humanity. Because if we just let the innovators go, they will actually destroy us all. Uh, <laughs> that, is, that is a very interesting statement. And it kind of goes to, you know, I'd like to establish a foundation for our discussion today. 
Um, you know, and and this is this is where we're building on that conversation that we just we have just overcome in essence of why space. Explain to us briefly, you know, elaborating on the discrete laws and their terrestrial analogs, which might apply to to Earth's orbit, to International Space Station, empty space itself, and you know, foreign celestial bodies like Moon, Mars, asteroids, comets that we are eventually going to explore and go beyond to. Right. So it's really interesting that my PhD is in space law. My master's at ISU, International Space University, focused on space policy. And I now call myself a space governance expert. So what do all these terminologies mean? And I think we use them all interchangeably but they speak to different audiences and they speak to different processes. So we all think we understand what is law. So law is basically the codification of rules and norms and everything into something that is binding and something that is enforceable, right? Either by the courts or by the police or, or enforceable by someone. That's what we understand as law. And in space, we have you know, these traditional international space law, which is where countries come together, they decide what will they be bound by and held responsible and liable for under international law. So you have this core international space law. And then Article 3 of the Outer Space Treaty, which is the main treaty that regulates the relationships between states and space, says that general international law also applies in space. So then we have to say, yeah, but clearly not all international law applies in space because space is a different context, right? There's no sovereignty in space. You know, there's no, there's no peoples that we know of in space. So we have to figure out, okay, how does general international law also apply to space? And then there's domestic laws, right? And so, you know, Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty says that states are responsible for non-governmental actors in space and also for continuing supervision and authorization. So that is through licensing regimes that states develop on the domestic level. And then, of course, there are policies, which is basically, you know, the set of options that states have or actors have to determine what is it that they actually want to do. So this is where, you know, your different stakeholders come in to determine what kind of activity should be done. And then the last level is basically your non-state actors. So your, your advocacy groups, your coalitions, how do they come up with non-binding codes and standards that we can now use? So this is the framework. And I personally call this governance because I think that all these are part of a system that interact and stakeholders interact and interrelate between all these different subsystems of the governance system. So it took me a long time to get to this point because I kept hearing space law and policy, but I was like, well, what is policy? What is law? And in the international context, it's even more complicated because there's no enforcement. So some people would say, is international law even really law? Is it more just politics? So space governance is very interdisciplinary because you have these sociological aspects you have to think about, the policy aspects, as well as the legal aspects. So that's the landscape in which I think about the regulation of activities, the regulation of actors, and how they all collaborate and work together to achieve stated outcomes. I'm interested on expanding on a, on a word that you just mentioned is that 
international law or or a statement international law is 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 vague per se as to the 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 complexity on who and where it applies is relative based upon where you are and what you're doing you know in the case of space mm. which law or which per se you know uh, which framework could apply to somebody that if in a future reference uh, a crime is committed on board the International Space Station, a spacecraft or the moon. Because currently, in geopolitics, each and every single nation has their own version. So what do you what do you think from the governance structure that we just talked about? Where does that fill in? Where does where do those gaps can be filled? Right. So Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty says that the state of registry, that is the state that registers either a space object or people, retains jurisdiction and control over that space object and over its personnel. So that means through registration, the state can exert its rules and, and its laws. And But of course, registration, as we know, well, maybe people don't know, registration has to be done as soon as practicable, which means that it may not be practicable for a state to register, which is why we know that we don't know completely what's in space. Um, <clears throat> but I think, you know, essentially what that means is that the even though people think that maybe we can have new rules in space, the state will never give up its sovereignty. So it will always want to connect back to the state. And that's why when Elon Musk, you know, did the Starlink terms of service that said that Mars is a different environment and Earth laws won't apply, you know, is not really considering the fact that, well, he's registered in the United States, he has to get a launch license from the United States. And that means US law is going to apply to his rockets. And is going to reply to his, you know, his habitats. And so, from a from a context of of uh, of knowing that the sovereignty of the state cannot be sort of misdeemed in this manner, uh, you know, it is the the primary objective of every state to ensure that their laws are withheld or 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 a claim to as per any execution of activity. I'm very curious to understand as to where do the rest of the stakeholders come into play? You know, um, right. Right. Like for example, uh, there are so many international legal initiatives uh, that, that happen on a, on a, on a week to week, on a month to month basis. Um, who are these players? You know, you've mentioned a couple of them. Um, and and who is the most influential here? You know, who has the right. largest amount, largest body of power? And uh, this is again why we talk about moving from law to govern, international law to international governance, because there are international law only applies to states, and in some contexts, increasingly to individuals, but not to non not to non state actors. And we're seeing, you know, the inter Interagency group on space debris, for instance, the IADC came up with the space debris mitigation guidelines that states now that people are now adopting. And you have, you know, powerful nonprofit organizations like, say, the Secure World Foundation, who do a lot of work at bringing different actors together. You have confers, which is talking about, you know, um, 
space traffic management and 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 all these different actors and they're all becoming a lot more powerful because they can lobby they can lobby the state so for instance all this work that we've heard of with the um space launch competitiveness act of 2015 in the us which basically made space mining legal that basically came about because of lobbying from the companies who wanted to exploit space and so if these companies and actors are becoming more and more sophisticated, they know the channels in which they can go through to get their rights upheld. And so now, you know, and even even youth groups, Space Generation Advisory Council, we know how powerful this SGAC is because they have their tentacles everywhere. And so as, as people are figuring out how to coalesce, how to organize themselves into coalitions and into groups, we're seeing now that the state ends up having a responsibility to make sure that they have consulted with this wide range of people. And particularly because Article 6 says that the state is internationally responsible for the activities of all these people, they have to listen to them. And that is unique in international law because in international law, states are not usually directly attributable for the activities of their non-state actors. But in space, it they are directly attributable. So even if they have no fault, so long as you can attach a nationality to a space activity, that country will be internationally responsible. You put it beautifully. The, the complexity of these relationships creates a, a landscape that we haven't seen before, right? Um, we haven't experienced before. So it begs the question, who's really in power? Uh, you know, the, Who has the most political capital to be able to exert um, a, a leverage as per, you know, there was a there was a, a video that I was watching by a professor, a Princeton professor, uh, Stephen Kotkin, and he stated, you know, who has the most leverage? Uh, who who is able to exert more leverage on on the international landscape and the astropolitics landscape and the governance landscape in this spectrum? What do you think? Right. And so it's interesting because I read a paper that was saying that the actual space race is between private actors and developing countries because the state, the strong states, are now using their private actors to act as proxy. Right. If we think about with SpaceX, for instance, all that development was paid for by the government and the government just decided we're going to support our private sector to do the things that we want to do. But of course, in developing countries, they're not there yet. So it's still the state in those countries. So now, you know, these a, com a company like SpaceX has the power of a state in another country. Would you say that uh, uh, space is a way for emerging countries to, to stand up and to, to gain ground and to, to catch up to the... the the previously known as as governments who have been established in space now? Well, it's really difficult because these private actors want to hide behind the fact that they're not mentioned in the laws. Right? So like I said, it doesn't it doesn't say that some people would argue, you know, planetary protection laws don't apply to SpaceX because SpaceX is not mentioned, I mean, because private actors are not mentioned, whereby these other countries 
who are not acting through private actors have all this state responsibility on top of their heads and they can't hide behind anything. Um, you know, so, so, and I think for new actors, emerging countries, developing countries, you know, I think space governance is an area that they can, they can actually have an equal playing field because they all have experience of either say mining operations in their countries. They have experience of being settled through colonialism. So the lived experience that they have actually means that discussions about rules and regulations, they actually can have a say, even though they're not technologically advanced enough to be able to work on the engineering. So in this case, would you say the statement of the rich get richer is, is applicable at the end of the day? The rich definitely get richer, but I think I think people are getting wiser to the fact that, you know, we have to start being futuristic in our outlook. We can't say, so like for me with developing countries, it's it's like, we've got so many problems. Why would we be talking about like governing Mars or governing the moon? And it's like, you can't afford, like if we look at history, you can't afford to just be like, I have more important priorities. You have to reserve some people to be thinking about the future. And I think for me, this is why I work with youth so much because youth are the perfect people. You know, you can save your experienced people to be working on the pressing issues of today, but you can develop your youth so that by the time they get old enough, they already are aware of these issues. They've already done all the interactions and networking amongst themselves before it became a political issue and so you now later on you now have the personnel to be able to discuss these topics yeah beautifully beautifully stated i mean i think the the future of our generation is uh is reliant upon the ideas that have been unexplored or inexplored essentially and to the manner where we're we're doing that and you know it bring it brings the question to you uh, you know, and I am very curious about the the research and the core problems that that you're working on in in space governance. And you know, what are some of the key points that you can mention of international contention? Right. So you know, one of the things that's really important to me, um, but I'm having a hard time figuring it out, <clears throat> is how to develop the approach to negotiation and the approach to consultation and the approach to collaborations because we have all this historical baggage that comes with it and so you know you know what kind of lens do you use to go into a negotiation in the first place bearing in mind that all these different actors are coming to the table with different things in their mind and it's not clear what the intent of different actors are. So we have a lot of mistrust in the space world, right? Like anytime Iran wants to launch a satellite, it's just this big deal. Are they really launching a satellite? Is it an inter is it a missile? You know, so you can't tell what is going to happen till you actually see the results. It's one of those really complicated issue areas. So how do we build trust between different actors? What are the tools that we need to be able to encourage more collaboration, more cooperation without fear? This is a, a thing that I'm really thinking about. And, and I'm really thinking about it from the perspective of 
developing countries and established countries because you know back in the day when space governance or space law kind of started you only had a couple of actors right that's back then before decolonization it was easier to get things done now at copus which is the un committee on space you have over 95 countries so how do you get things on the agenda item in the first place how do you determine what topic is important how do you stop political gridlocking now these are all quintessential problems that that are not peculiar to space they are global governance problems i also work on climate change and it's kind of the same these intractable problems that that people are coming at it from polarized viewpoints and how do we get past polarity and i think as humans we may not ever be able to do that but if we continue trying to understand the perspective of the other and put ourselves in someone else's shoes we may be able to come closer to the middle so that's basically what i spend most of my time thinking about you know i i i hope it doesn't keep you up at night too much uh you know thinking about these problems but i'm i'm uh, it, it definitely would keep me up to 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 figure out that especially the trust uh the the building of the trust problem that 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 you're that you're um uh you're trying to tackle and it kind of begs to to question uh, as to the historical context that you've mentioned you know we have as human beings we've had the opportunity to resolve so many different conflicts in uh, territorial disputes and let's look at the problem of uh, remote territorial disputes uh, in the essence of arctic uh, elsewhere uh, in, in 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 separate nations or uh, large colonial nations per se um, and there's been large context of uh, philosophical uh, concepts on property rights that have been, you know, developed and adopted over the last 200 years. Is owning something uh, still the right concept for space? And how can the space community approach this issue? That's a really complicated uh, and great question. And it's so because I do have a very Western philosophy because of my background, I understand the Lockean idea of you put your work, you put your works into the land, and so you should be able to reap the benefits. And you can only reap the benefits if your rights to your work can be protected, right? Because if we go back to, you know, the Platian, Plato's state of nature, and we go back to you know, depending on the account that you have of human nature, whether you think that we're all beasts or whether you think, you know, we're all angels, you know, if you, if you leave people to their own devices and you don't say that this belongs to someone, then someone else is just going to try and get it. So I understand the American philosophy that if we want innovation to happen, we want enterprise to happen. We have to give people the frameworks to be able to say that we will defend your rights. And that's what the US Space Competitiveness Launch Launch Competitiveness Act is trying to say. They're trying to say, even though internationally we don't know if this is legal, the US will defend you. So it's giving people that certainty that at least I'll be defended by my country and so I can go ahead and that gives me peace of mind that I will be defended anyway. Now, when you start looking at other philosophies, like 
the African Ubuntu philosophy, which is about, you know, oneness and, and, you know, having a humane relationships between people, you now see that people think about commonality and communal nature and, and that we should take this concept of, because space is something that belongs to everyone, of thinking about how do we have a shared ownership? And a lot of people use Ostrom, you know, Eleanor Ostrom's philosophy of the commons to be able to talk about how these territories should be regulated. And and I think we have to find a middle ground. Like I'm always a middle ground person that is very much, and, and this means I have enemies everywhere, but, but, but you have to allow people to benefit from their work while saying that we're not going to exclude. And this is going to require a mind shift for people because they don't trust each other. And I think if you did have trust for another, and if you had fair and equitable allocations, you wouldn't be trying to fight each other. But the problem that we have in space is that even though space is vast, there is scarcity because the resources are limited. Even if we're talking about Earth orbits, we're talking about the geostationary orbit, we're talking about the South Poles where the water is, these are all limited resources. So what kind of allocation formulas should we use? And is the first thing that we need some kind of central authority to be the one that allocates to different people? Because you can't trust people to do it by themselves. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's funny, uh, that sounds very ISU of you, especially coming from a, <laughs> coming from the middle ground perspective and to be able to look at everybody and, and, and to establish a basis for space, uh, you know, a, a, a basis for space co- cooperation, essentially. Um, and, you know, it begs to question that uh, have we learned from the sins of our past of colonialization and, and the context that we will be able to continue this journey forward and prevent similar mistakes of happening in the future? We haven't learned. Uh, last, last night, I was listening to a conference about the Native American treaties in Canada. So the treaties that were signed between the colonists and the Native Americans. And, you know, they are... Okay, I'm going to say some controversial things. I have this conversation with my dad and we talk about are the Native Americans hanging on too much to their history in the sense that society doesn't work in the way that it used to work where people can be nomadic and they can live off the land, you know. And so if society is moving away from that, why are you holding on to these concepts that that you're not getting um, development in? Why are you holding on to these concepts? And then you realize when you hear them talk, those treaties that, that were signed, if they don't hang on to their old traditional practices, they will get exterminated. They will lose everything. And so the fact that they're still fighting for their lives you know, and with all this that we know, these people still feel like they're fighting for their lives, even with everything that's happened, even with all the awareness, even with all the dialogue and reconciliation, etc. So we haven't learned because 
people are still trying to get more from them and still trying to say, you know, no, we're just going to put you over here. So when I think of, you know, the American Indians, the Native Americans, then we see by the fact that this relationship hasn't been resolved, that we still we still haven't gotten anywhere. Right. And so so this is really challenging. I can attest to the fact that uh, haven't had the opportunity and the gratitude to work with Native American, uh, Native Canadians per se, uh, you know, and the establishment of the first university in Canada that is dedicated to First Nations. Mm. Uh, it's a it's a it's a step in a positive direction. However, as you said, the the respectful essence of hanging on by a thread per se. But do you think it's necessary because you know people as 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 we know in the Western society are born without heritage, mm. especially from the last, you know, um, uh, over the last uh, 100 years or so, you know, because of the number of migrations that have taken place. Um, you know, why, why should I fight? It begs the question, why should I fight for something of the past rather than focusing right. to build the future life? or the future version of, of our generation? You know, I haven't thought about that because, you know, now that I live in America and I see African-Americans, their plight is very different from mine as an African. And I think because I do have a sense of heritage and root that goes back infinite times, even to the first civilizations. So... So in a way, you know, the Africans and the African-Americans, they don't have the same issues. And I have a certain confidence because even if I get treated badly in America, I can be like, well, I have a home somewhere, even though people get treated badly there too. But you have this sense of you have somewhere that you belong to versus, say, the African-American who this is their home and they are mistreated. And they don't have a sense of belonging. And that's why so many of them are trying to, there's that movement to go back to Africa. But, you know, but but they would still feel a bit of a difficulty belonging, even if they went back to Africa, right, because of everything that's happened. So, so you make a really powerful point that people are losing this concept of heritage. And, and I think in a way, that's why you know, projects like Mars One, where they were, people were like, I'm ready to go to Mars. I mean, if you have a sense of heritage and if you have a sense of, you know, belonging to somewhere, it's really hard to say, I'm going to pack up and leave everything and go to a hostile environment where I'm sure to die, you know? And so, so, so I, I think that this, this new breed of people who are really interested in settlement, who are really interested in, you know, moving us forward, you know, we have to balance that with what does it mean to have a connection to somewhere? And that's what we can learn from the native Amer Canadians and, and Americans, that having that connection to where you are, to who your people are, to the land, to the environment. And maybe we can create a universal cosmological feeling, um, which might unite us all because we all have the sense of ownership of earth. So I think we can really learn lessons from these non-traditional actors, from history, from heritage, to move us forward into, you know, when we create new settlements to have that feeling of oneness. 
So what do you think about the idea of the, the, the pale blue dot? Do you think that philosophy of universal um, oneness, in essence of, you know, that we are the only species and in order for us to thrive as the only species or the only known species per se, um, I don't want to get my, 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 my astronomer friends uh, angry. Uh, do you think that that philosophy of the only unknown or the known species could thrive in creating a cosmological version of, of, uh, of cohesive bonds together for humanity? I think the first thing that we have to do, though, is understand all the different narratives. Because, for instance, have you heard of the overview effect? Yes. Where they say that if someone goes out into space, all of a sudden... They have this cognitive shift. I mean, to me, that sounds like mythology. And I'll tell you why it sounds like mythology. And I had a really interesting conversation with an astronaut about this. It was because so many of these astronauts are military guys who get told what to do. You know, they have blinkers on like this. When you get to space, you suddenly have all this freedom and you have all this openness. And then you have that cognitive shift. But you and I, for instance, who already have this, may not feel such a big cognitive shift because we, on Earth, we already have that awareness. We already, you know, we already see ourselves as global people. And so going to space wouldn't necessarily make me feel even more connected because I already feel connected. Again, that Carl Sagan's pale blue spot, maybe the native, the native people already feel like they have this oneness with the environment, even without going to space. And historically, you know, it's uh, I think the cultures of the past have had that, have displayed that immensely than the, the human beings of today. And it creates a question about ethics where you I start I start to wonder or I think I'm starting to get this understanding that we have been poisoning and eating a biological life and animal planet uh, on the only planet that we have and we know of, um, what is it that we need to do to establish a super cultural code of space ethics uh, for a f sustainable future? And this is going towards your passion of climate change, right? Uh, and I'm, I'm very curious on your about your thoughts on that. Yeah, so, I mean... Climate change is an intractable problem because everybody contributes to it and nobody wants to change their behavior. So, and because nobody wants to go backwards. And so we end up focusing on technology as the answer when really it's about behavior change. And so this is the same, it's the same in space in that we end up filling our time talking about the rover or, you know, the technology, when really it's a behavioral issue. And, and, and the technology is secondary because once you've got a consensus at Edom, a meeting of minds, a, a, a way for people to think as one, they can work on the technology and it will just be really, really fast. So, and, and we've seen with climate change that even though so the Paris Agreement on we thought we we thought we'd resolved it with the Paris Agreement on climate change that was in 2015 the big global agreement that basically 
when it took over the Kyoto Protocol, which basically set limits for states and said, you have to bring your greenhouse gas emissions to a certain level. The Paris Agreement was like, okay, that doesn't work because people are not going to bring down their limits. So let's do something where it's nationally determined. Each country determines what they're going to do. And the only legal obligation is basically transparency, that you will report what you've done and then you will increase your ambition over time. So ratchet up your ambition. So everybody, and then the whole, almost the whole world signed on to that agreement. And everybody thought, okay, we're there. We look down five years later, and what we now see is that nobody's increasing their ambition. And it has, and the legal tool of reporting doesn't mean anything when all the other actors don't even hold you to account because they don't want to be held to account themselves. So do you think that it should be the the order of, of execution should be solve inequality, then save the planet, and then move on to space? So, so in I mean, I gave a TED talk where I asked the question, do we have to solve the basic ills of society before we deal with fanciful things like space exploration? And my answer to that, of course, is... No, because if you come to the United States, which is supposed to be one of the most advanced countries in the world, you will see poverty, serious poverty. You know, I will never, and the thing that sticks to my mind was once I went to a conference from, I was in Montreal and I went by bus to Washington DC. And when I got to the bus station, I was just shocked at what I saw in the bus station. It was like hell on earth. And I said to myself, I'm going to a space conference and this is the first place that I land. And so if, if it's true that you fix the ills of society before you do space, nobody would have done space because nobody has solved it. So, so, so we have to, so we can't think of things in silos do one at a time because so long as we have so long as we have human nature and the competitive spirit that we have and the sense of capitalism, then others will still be trying to get ahead of others. And so some people are gonna get left behind. So, so the way that we have to address that is those of us that are conscious of the others getting left behind, as we move forward, we must always put our hand back and say, who are we bringing along in this journey? Who are we carrying along? What is our responsibility to look back and see who's behind us and bring them forward? Is there a need for a development of a new set of code of ethics to ensure that the next humanitarian level is is counted upon? And, you know, we are working to a point where the technological advancements are, are moving so fast along with societal developments that legislation is essentially lagging behind. So the, uh, the, 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 the topics of inequalities and tackling poverty, um, it, mm. it, it gets to, it gets to the back of back of the line type of option. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, poverty and inequality is, I mean, they're the roots of every problem. They're the roots of inequality is the root of everything. And so, but, but I'm a Christian and so if we go back to biblical times, you know, if we, if we go back to these great works of our religion, we see that 
you know, ever since Adam and Eve and, and us being able to know the difference between right and wrong, we've always had that sense of inequality. And the question now becomes, you know, taking a religious lens, how do we answer the why? And we can't answer the why, which is why we have faith anyway, because we know that there's no, there's no answer to that. And so faith means that we keep being hopeful. And I think hope is a big, um, hope is a big aspect of humanity. And, and, and many people in developing countries, sometimes it looks like we are happier people because we have hope. You know what I mean? I personally feel that the, that the idea of hope is can be terrible as much as it can be beneficial. But I'm curious to understand the next level of, uh, of ensuring that the inequality continues to decrease over time. We have established that because of this religious context, they were able to culminate the essence of UN um, declaration of human rights. Coming from that perspective and looking at inequality, is is UN Declaration of Human Rights a good basis to develop uh, the next level of ethics? Or is it religious? Or is it somewhere related to the essence of the times of Cold War? Yeah, so you've got people who are now, you know, doing like Michelle Hanlon, who are now doing research about applying human rights principles you know, to space, but human rights, you know, can be critiqued a lot, right? Because, you know, whose version of humanity, whose, whose version, who decides what is a right? And there are all kinds of rights that people talk about, you know, the right, and, and, and these are also cultural, right? Once upon a time, we would never have thought that that you had a right to say that you're not a specific gender, you know, that, that, that wouldn't have even, you know, crossed our minds. So we understand that the concept of rights is something that evolves. And so now that we're thinking of individuals going to space rather than just states, should they be accorded rights that are independent of a state? because they need to be safeguarded and protected. And so if, but the problem we have is again, because we're not all in the same starting point as to what is a right, and then being able to balance and allocate resources. For instance, I know people are talking about the right to breathable air, right, in space, because, you know, oxygen is not free and someone is gonna have the power to determine who can breathe. So that should be a human right for anyone that goes into space, that it's not based on how powerful you are, or how much money you have to be able to breathe. Everyone should be able to breathe. So, so, you know, having to come up with what are these universal principles? And I think when they came up with that back in the day, I think they, they focused on political rights. They focused on, you know, a, a, a set number of rights. And I think that's what we would have to start with. We would start with the rights that are based on your right to live, right? And then as, as we're thinking about what makes the quality of life, you know, you now get more and more nuanced about what you're trying to protect and it evolves over time. Because I think the first people that go to Mars or that go to the moon, are not going to be expecting a, their quality of life to be great, right? Because 
the quality of life, I mean, it's going to take a long time to connect back to earth. There's not going to be all the equipment. So, so you can't expect that their quality of life is going to be like fantastic, but over time you would expect that it evolves. So being able to ensure that that evolutionary concept, that, that, that things don't get crystallized such that you can't evolve things over time is going to be the tool that we need to figure out because the thing about law that sucks it's a good thing we have this precedent what was done in the past should be done in the future that's the way that's the way that's the way law works and that can be good because it's certainty you know this is what's going to happen with my set of facts but it can suck because it's like yeah but things have changed and you're still making me stuck on what happened in the past. So I think that's what we need for space, some kind of um, some kind of mechanism that evolution can be, you know, that, that, that it can be considered adequately. You, you mentioned uh, a key phrase here that um, I like to get our, our audience who don't know um, learned upon, uh, the universal principles. Can you, can you, can you possibly elaborate on what are these universal principles? principles when it comes down to it well i mean there's 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 natural law right so so there's we do as human beings we do even though we don't like to admit it we do have these natural laws that we know there's some kind of right or wrong we know for instance that if there's a child there that has done nothing wrong you know, we know that they shouldn't take the brunt of someone else's wrong because they're innocent. So natural law would be like, just don't, don't get children involved in war or like, don't give them weapons or don't make them fight, things like that. So these are universal kind of principles, but, but the problem is that, um, even though we know these innate things that are universal, that apply to everyone, because some people are trying to get ahead and they will recognize that others have this moral sensibility, they can use that to advance themselves. So, so for instance, I think back in the day, you know, children could be slaves. And, and so, you know, some people would say, so there isn't actually an innate or natural thing that says you shouldn't harm a child because back in the day we could. And, and so, so I think that it's, it's very difficult, even though most of us have a sensibility about what is a natural law, I think others can use that against you, you know? In this case of looking at the universality, uh, you know, I wonder how, or will we be able to create more progress moving forward to establish new universal principles or, or, or for space per se? And do we need new principles for a successful future in space? So that's a, a, it's a really great question about when newness and novelty in, uh, leads to progress, because some people like my dad would say, there's actually nothing new under the sun. Like when it comes to humanity, everything has been done, everything has been seen. And so those who sometimes propose the new actually don't have a good sense of history, right? And so 
we this is why interdisciplinary transdisciplinarity is so important because we all need to use different lenses to understand where have we been before to figure out where we're going and if we have the toolbox from the past that we can use that's going to be good because like i like we already said the good thing about precedent is that people know what to expect so the first thing we have to do is look at our past and say okay we're always saying that the past was so bad but actually what in the past do we have that we can utilize and then once we've recognized what we have in the past we now look to our present and we now say but guess what people say that the past was so bad but our present this is the best times we've ever had we're living in a heyday right now we don't have world wars you know poverty is actually reduced so we look at the past to say what have we done we look at the present to say things are not that bad and then we mix those two together and say but what do we want to make better in the future learning from our past and recognizing that things are getting better every day so you're saying that take the positives of the past add it to the positives of the present and then create the future instead of yeah exactly and i think and and but where we see people don't move forward is because there's no recognition of their past hurts so while i'm proposing that we focus on the positive and take all the good points i recognize that no one because of our psychology no one is going to move forward unless people stand up and say okay but i recognize where i hurt you so and this is this is what truth and consideration committees are all about you need to stand up and acknowledge where you went wrong before anybody is going to be able to move forward this has been a fantastic discussion on the on, on the scope of ethics and you know looking at from from all lenses and i'd like to shift the conversation a little bit and go towards more on the international level of affairs as per happening um in the well-known game of uh, game theoretic scenario, the Dove and Hawk game, the system dynamics are such that there will never exist an equilibrium between two agents or population at odds with one another. Uh, their interactions over time can be modeled uh, much like a swing of a pendulum. Uh, serving as an analogy of the constant struggle between the good and the bad, are we on a collision course for a clash of governmental systems in space? For example, democracies versus authoritarian systems, sanctions. Uh, what will sanctions look like in space? Uh, should parties uh, stop trading one another or increase trading at all costs? Uh, humanity of tax uh, for companies who want to do business in space. Uh, and for those who are not following the humanitarian standards. But I'm very curious as to where you first go. You know, will this lead to an extraterritorial law of space nations? So the one thing that we have to remember is that we started off bipolar. We started off with two different systems, right? The Cold War and the Soviet Union system and the US system. So that's nothing new. Now we're just saying it's China and the US. But it but we've always been in that. And so space has always lived in this world of utopia of like 
Maybe we can use space as a canvas for the human imagination to think differently. While the reality is we were living in this very bipolar world. And so basically nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. The distinction now is just that there are less bystanders. So back in the day when the Outer Space Treaty was negotiated and, and the USSR and the US were coming up with all the terms, the rest of the countries were just kind of sitting around like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Today, those countries are saying, I want a piece of the action too. So, so this diversification, and this is why today we're always talking about diversity and inclusion and equity. And we're always saying that, and, and, but I, I focus on equity, inclusion, and diversity in that order, because I'm like, once, because I think if you focus on diversity without putting the systems in place, you don't get anywhere. So you have to focus as, as a core that you have equity. So you know how to treat people and then you start being inclusive. And then you can focus on bringing everyone and, and having a diverse environment. And so I think that's the distinction with today. We've always been in this bipolar world. We've always had this, and, and these actors trying to use soft power to get the rest of the countries on their side. So we're used to that. The difference now is empowering others to say, you can come in and you can add to this multipolarity instead of this bipolar nature. Does that mean that in the future or in the near future, we'll say we'll add on or there will be add-ons to this bipolar nature of operations and viewpoints uh, throughout the scope of other nations that are stepping in, developing nations? What do you think will be required for the next generation, 21st century legal framework to establish ourselves as a multi-planetary habitation? Yeah, species? so... I think the first thing is shattering the narratives. And some people, some people might not like that because they like the kumbaya nature of thinking about space. But I think that that's the first thing that needs to go. We need to stop being like kumbaya, like, oh, I love Star Trek and all this and start seeing space as a place and seeing space as, you know, okay, this is somewhere that we want to go and this is somewhere that we're going to go and because we're human beings we're going to take our nature with us so let's have a more realist lens rather than a kumbaya like everything is going to be okay lens let's have a realist lens about what it is that we're going to do and how and what kind of challenges we're going to have but i think but if you socialize children to understand that there is a future out there and there are things that can be done. And it is interesting because it advances the human endeavor, but you don't feed them lies. So for instance, when I see all these kids walking around with like NASA t-shirts and NASA stuff, and you see that, you know, they don't know how much military is involved, you know, and, and they're just like, yeah, NASA's cool. It's like, what's cool about NASA? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's really complicated. And so I want some truth. I want some reality. And people might say, well, that you, when you demystify space, you take away the sexiness of space. But I think by demystifying space 
and working on truth and transparency and conciliation, then we see space as a place that we can go to and, and do different activities just like anywhere else. It's been like that for a lot of us who have been sort of engulfed in this cultural shift that was created back in the Apollo era. My essence of understanding in terms of the framework that was established through the cultural means, how is it that it needs to be enforced? Or like, how do we need to enforce laws in space per se? Mm, right. So, you know, it's really challenging because the way we enforce international laws in space is like through, for instance, sanctions and through having a security council at the United Nations, which is made up of like the five strongest countries, which is really challenging because who enforces the enforcers or who oversees the guardians, right? And and so, you know, who, who has anyone sanctioned the US? <laughs> That's true, yeah. You know, so, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's really difficult because it, it requires a certain sense of saying that there are some countries that are above the law and who, who decides who those countries are. And I think this is why we end up doing like rotations sometimes and saying, okay, you can, but then there's always permanent seats. So the U S always has a permanent seat. And so, so, but the fantastic thing about the United States, is it's like a microcosm of the world in the United States. So while it's difficult on the international level to like sanction the US, they get sanctioned in, in the US. And so it's like, this is why it comes down to individuals again and giving the individuals power and autonomy to be able to effect the changes that they want and then giving them the reality to know the difference between fiction and fact. True, absolutely, and beautifully stated there. And it, it, it kind of establishes a, a groundwork for for our list of priorities that you think we need to establish uh, or or formulate to assure a cooperation of interplanetary settlement in the twenty first century, which a lot of companies are looking forward to. Yeah, and it's it's really difficult to have the, that list though because it requires it requires a lot of insight and it requires a lot of maturity and it requires a lot of foresight. And so this is where new topics like my school, the School for the Future Innovation in Society is a really interesting kind of intellectual home to think about these kind of activities because we look at what are the societal implications of the technologies that we build and how do we think about that as we craft the future. And there are new positions out there, like um, in the US, we just have a new position in the government of science and society. And my job title is space and society. And so, you know, really thinking all those things that you never thought had a sociological bent to them, it really matters today because 
you have to consider all the different factions of society. And this is where all those topics that we never thought, I mean, who would have thought sociology was an important topic? You know, we, it's just like, most of us are just like, I don't even know what that is, right? But understanding who people are, what they bring to the table is, is increasingly important. So at my school, you know, we have like something like 50 professors from 40 disciplines. And the challenge is trying to have a commonality in a common language. And so this is where English, who thought English was a powerful and important topic? Like, are we even all using the same words? Do they, what do those words mean? It kind of goes back to the, the statement that we kind of started with is how will all of this focus on law, governance and space help us enhance the standard of our living here on earth? And how can we ensure that no nation or a group of individuals per se is left behind or excluded from enjoying the, the fruits of exploration terrestrially and off world? Right. And, and I always think about this. They say that the, the pen is mightier than the sword. And, but a lot of scientists and engineers will just be like, oh, what, your weapon is a word? But it is so, words are powerful. You know, you can say something that can calm a nation or you can say something, look at what happened with President Trump and everyone saying that he caused this insurrection by just a few tweets. So words are powerful. Preachers, Martin Luther King was able to move a generation by just talking about I have a dream, you know, the power of words. Now he later said that dream became a nightmare and that dream killed him, but everybody will still remember his vision because he was so powerful with his language. And so us as people who um, think about science and technology need to think about the science and technology of words. And the impact that those words will have. So choose choose them carefully, I guess. Yes. Right? Yes. And and that kind of, you know, sums up a uh, a critical component of, of the way that we're looking at the world as per now. You know, any last statements that you would like to pose to our audience? Uh, anything curious yes. that, that you would like them to think about? And, you know, this is a question that I ask to each one of our guests is that what do you think that humanity needs to do in order for us to be moving in the direction of space forward? Yeah. So my favorite quote comes from Joey Estrich and Ed Finn. And they said that space is not a void, but it's a canvas for the human imagination. Questions of policy and logistics are merely scaffolding for a deeper set of questions about who we are and who we want to become as a species. So we explore the universe because we are curious, not just about what we will find out, but what that will do to us and how we will grow to match our expanding sphere of action and understanding. So why are these words so powerful? They're so powerful because it's not just about knowledge, but what will that knowledge do to you? 
How is it going to impact you? And is it, how is it going to change you? And once we start recognizing that we're not just empty vessels that can just ingest something and eject something, but something comes in us and something happens to us innately and we change. So there are different ways of knowing and there are different tools of knowing and there are different um, consequences of knowing, but we have to become more conscious about what knowing actually does to us. So no longer can we be passive consumers of knowledge, passive consumers, consumers of information. This is where misinformation, um, disinformation campaigns can come in and affect us. So everyone has to become a more critical thinker, see the information that comes in front of them and says, how is this affecting me? And what is this doing to me? And how am I going to relay this information back to someone else or something else? So I think my conclusion is basically that let knowledge change you for the better and let it impact you and you use that knowledge to impact someone else. Wow. Wow. What a powerful way to end our podcast. I think, you know, I, I am astonished about the fact that I knew I would learn, uh, but I didn't think that I would learn this much. So I, from the bottom of my heart and, 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 uh, and all of us, I sincerely thank you for taking the time and, and joining us today and, you know, and, and, and to, to give us a perception and the depth of information that you have about space governance and law. Thank you so much. And I am sure that in the future, when we have the tough questions, we will have you back. All right, cheers. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode. Stay tuned for more topics we have in store for you. Follow us on Spotify. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Hear you next time. Ciao.